Welcome to the Memories of a Moonbird podcast, exploring life one story at a time. Hello, friends. I'm Daniel Sherl. Today on the show, he's no stranger to podcasts and the mysteries of the cosmos. He's an astrophysicist and astrophysics professor at the City University of New York's College of Staten Island, as well as an associate with the Hayden Planetarium and Department of Astrophysics at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. This Harvard and U of A graduate not only studies colliding galaxies, quasars, and the star formation history of the universe, but he's also a frequent co-host on Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson and is an award-winning author. If that weren't enough, he's a devoted husband, father of three cool kids, is the president of the Astronomical Society of New York, and in 2019 was named a fellow of the American Astronomical Society. Wow. Despite all of this, in his own words, he's just an astronomer guy. It's a real honor to welcome Dr. Charles Liu. Charles, welcome to the show, and how are you? Hi, Daniel. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Let's jump in with my favorite first question, which is, where were you born and raised? Ah, I was born in Taipei, Taiwan, Republic of China. Hmm. Remember, that's the formal legal name you have to put in there to (laughs) make everybody happy who is uh, worried about such matters. But... uh, Both my parents uh, were born in Taiwan in a small town south of Taipei, and then they moved to Taipei after they got their educations and and became professionals. And I was born there along with my sister and my brother. And then my father uh, became a graduate student in the School of Agriculture at Cornell University and Hmm. eventually a professor there. And so when I was young, uh, my family moved to the United States. And I grew up in Ithaca, New York. Now, you mentioned Ithaca. And of course, the first thing that comes to mind is for me is Carl Sagan at Cornell. Oh, Have you ever, absolutely. Did you ever meet him and work with him? I did not. Uh, it, it's kind of an odd coincidence. We kind of flew by like ships in the night. I was a little bit younger uh, and we never actually intersected. Although, of course, his name was uh, in everybody's ears back in those days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what did your parents do for careers? Ah, uh, My mother was a uh, director of obstetrics and midwifery, a public health nurse. Cool. And that was in Taiwan. Uh, In America, she stayed home and took care of us kids during that time that my father was a professor of agriculture Mm. uh, at Cornell University's famous school. Uh, He studied pomology, uh, which is a study of fruit trees, basically. Uh, How cool. Mostly apples, but also things like peaches, pears, bananas, and things like that. And, if it uh, wasn't for apples, we wouldn't have gravity. So, you know. Kind of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, uh, all kinds of strange, funny ways. But one of the neat things was that my one of my father's research areas was how to keep apples uh, crisp and crunchy during the wintertime without mm. putting chemicals in them, right? How do you do it just in their storage in such a way that they will be yummy uh, all through the winter so that... Uh, people who have orchards and stuff could keep their uh, prices high and not have to sell everything at the at the harvest time at discount prices and then not have income during the winter time. Did he come up with some solution? He did. Uh, he. This is great history, by the way. We we don't really know agricultural history in this country anymore because the way that agriculture works in America is so large scale that a lot mm-hmm. of these little uh, things don't happen anymore. Uh, in America, 
you have large-scale solutions to small-scale problems, but a lot of these small-scale problems still are very important in many parts of the world. And so uh, that was part of my father's motivation, uh, being from Taiwan, to try to help farmers uh, through practical and theoretical research. Um, okay, that's a little bit uh, of a digression, but the, what he did was he he worked with his thesis advisor, a guy named Bob Smock, a pioneer in this kind of storage method, where you put the apples in a room that's not only refrigerated, but has certain gases pumped in or out of these sealed rooms. So it is well known that there are some chemicals uh, that if they're floating around in the air will cause fruits uh, and vegetables to ripen and eventually rot. And so if you could remove some of those uh, gases and insert other gases that could inhibit the absorption of those ripening gases, then you can keep vegetables and fruits uh, fresher and more like they just came off the tree uh, mm. during that time. Right. So he and uh, Bob Smock, his advisor, worked together and perfected a method where uh, by putting these apples in controlled atmosphere storage environments, uh, they, they figured out which gases were the things that you needed to keep out, which gases that you wanted to add more into. And over time, he was able to take an apple uh, and keep it crisp for an entire year. Wow. And so it was really, really tremendous. Yeah. So uh, it was great work. And today, what happens is that uh, the large farms, uh, apple orchards specifically, places like Washington, New York State, places like that, have taken that basic technology, which was worked on decades ago, to another level where they will put uh, thousands and thousands of pounds of apples into a big room and blow in this gas. It's not, it's harmless to humans, but they'll blow it into the storage room and just let it sort of sit over time. Then the apples, their skins, uh, their uh, sort of uh, have these gases, these molecules sort of sit into their chemical receptors, which then prevent any further ripening for some period of time. As long so it's as it's almost like they're freezing, hard. but they're not. It's just in a uh, or in stasis, really. Right. Almost. Exactly. Yeah. It's fascinating. The, it's, it's a combination of refrigeration and this. Um, gaseous introduction. Uh, I don't know the exact formal word for that, but uh, what what you do is you wind up preserving the apples as if they had just been uh, picked off the tree. And that is amazing. It is a really cool technology and is wonderful. Well, I, I love apples, so please mm -hmm. thank your dad for me. I will. I will. I'll tell him. <laughs> he, he'll be very happy to hear that. So, what was little Chuck like as a child? <laughs> I am. I am. Uh, as a child, I was fully out of control. Okay. I really didn't like structure. I loved to learn and I loved to do things and do new things and try new things. But boy, if you sat me down somewhere and wanted me to just follow along with what <laughs> other people were doing, uh, I was absolutely not having any of that. Mm. Uh, I would do something for five or 10 minutes and then start bouncing off the walls. So did this affect your ability to actually study and learn though? Well, of course, absolutely. You see, I have come to the conclusion that if I were a child today, I would have absolutely received 
a Ritalin. A, a diagnosis, yeah, of, yeah. of ADD, ADHD, something like that. No question about it. Hmm. Um, would I have been medicated? I don't know. But surely I was disruptive. But what was my saving grace was that, well, aside from the fact that my older sister is named Grace and she saved me on numerous occasions <laughs> from getting into trouble, um, the, I did well in school. I was fortunately able to do in 10 minutes what was asked of me, right? People like in second or third grade, whatever, you'd have a worksheet of addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, whatever things, right? Workbook stuff. And I would basically get it done uh, between one o'clock uh, after recess and one fifteen, And then between uh, one and 2.30, when everyone else was supposed to be doing this stuff, between one fifteen and 2.30, I was disrupted. So it was annoying to my teachers, but <laughs> the the system of education basically looks at a person's achievements at the end in some quantitative fashion, right? And if I got the stuff done, then they'd be like, okay, as long as you just go off and don't disrupt people, if you can, that'd be all right. Uh, I really appreciate it. If you not bother other people, you, know, you can go to the coat room and, and play board games or something like that or read, but uh, go ahead and do your own thing. That's funny. And so my teachers, I, I really want to thank my teachers for being very patient with me. But um, you know, when I talk to teachers, I always tell them, you know, you always have that one student, you know, is in the back of the room, <laughs> is always kind of tapping, never quite paying attention, doesn't seem like they're engaged really but they really are, you know, and, and, but they're annoying, man. You know, I tell them I'm that guy. That's funny. I was that kid. Now, are you still annoying or have you? Heck yeah. Can you tell? <laughs> I mean, look at me, look at me. I'm just sitting here. Um, I'm waiting for you to start tapping the desk and interrupting the oh, microphone on the podcast. Just wait, just wait. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I, what's, I, a, what's a funny story that your, your parents would tell about you as a child? Do you think? Where, where do I start? Right. <laughs> well, um, pick one succinct because we have the 600 other questions to get. To. Oh, geez. <laughs> um, there, there was a time uh, when, I really wanted to be the center of attention. And, and so when people watch TV, I would take the couch cushions and stand in front of the TV and block it. Like, <laughs> hello, hi, I'm here. You know, that kind of thing. And wait, where are you in the birth order of kids? Oh, I'm middle child, middle child. Middle child. Because oh, yeah. yeah, that's usually your youngest child kind of thing. Right, right. So I, I was just the, the outlier, the one with issues all the time. Um, one good story, I suppose, uh, is that when my sister, who is the older one, um, my saving grace, as I mentioned earlier, started taking piano lessons. And I was, what, six or seven or something like that. And she was older. And I got really irritated. I wanted piano lessons. And, and you can imagine back in those days, uh, it was sort of like, well, you know, piano's for girls. You should go play sports and things like that. And I did play sports. I played baseball and things like that in in the local leagues. But I wanted to play piano, darn it, you know. And uh, I was, it, it, the story is that every day that my sister went to the lesson, I would complain and I would cry and I would yell. I would be angry the whole time until she got back. And, and this is so, when you were 17. Seven. <laughs> 17 i was annoying in other ways but we could have that conversation some other time that was when i was seven and and so uh i sort of said and so they finally they said uh, look we we would love to give you piano lessons but actually we can't afford it um oh. and i was like i don't care what kind of the kid i'm like what does afford it mean right but then my piano teacher uh 
you notice I said my piano teacher because yeah. indeed I, I got what I wanted. The the piano teacher was very kind and said, "Look, uh, you're uh, you already have a daughter here. I'll give you a, a discount on on your second kid." A twofer. That's great. Yeah, figuring that that I wouldn't last very long because I don't have a very long attention span. Um, but it turned out that I wound up continuing to play piano. And so I still play piano to this day, although, of course, I, it's been a while since I've had lessons. I also am a piano player, so that's Excellent! Cool. What what yes. genres do you like most? Well, I came out to Los Angeles to compose music for film and television, so I prefer orchestral wow. and instrumental stuff. Um, oh, fantastic! Yeah, so I still actually compose, and I've, over the years, released a few CDs of my instrumental music and stuff like that. But I do, wow. I like pop and instrumental stuff, so I... I geared towards movie soundtracks. I mean, I love a lot of different music, but I, when I sit down to play, I like really beautiful, sweeping, kind of powerful orchestral and piano music. John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith? Oh, oh man. <laughs> Can I have That's them both, tough. right? Yeah, yeah. And actually, <laughs> those guys... <laughs> it's basically yeah, I mean, Star Trek versus Star Wars, right? And then exactly. there's Star Wars. All those... Grandiose. We got to see um, a few years back. Uh, John Williams was here. You know, he does a concert every once in a while, and yeah. it was John Williams conducting John Williams. Oh, and it, it was okay. one of the coolest things I'd ever seen in my life. It was like three hours of some, and it was him doing his own stuff, and it was amazing. And of course, he did Star Wars last, which was fun. Yes, um, but actually, of all the great movie composers, two of my really big favorites are Basil Polidurus, who you may yes. know, and uh, Thomas Newman are, are two huge yes. faves of mine. So I remember really, listening to yeah. the RoboCop soundtrack and yeah, going, that's great. who the heck did this? This is not Williams. It's not Goldsmith. It's cool. It's Basil. So that was amazing. Yeah, and he did. Um, so one of my favorite scores he ever did was Conan the Barbarian, actually, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, that movie. Yes, so forget I about the movie. movie. Yeah, and the movie's great, actually. But but if you actually listen to the to the opening score, yeah. like the dun 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 uh-huh. dun, dun uh-huh. it's, it's it's an incredible piece of music. And the and there's a and that a was Basil Polidorus, really. Yeah, wow. yeah, wow, yeah. It's wow. great. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, well, hey, I'm curious. What's something about you today that's still distinctly like Taiwanese? Oh, I still speak Hakka. The Taiwanese people are mostly ethnically Han Chinese, Hmm. but there's been waves of immigration from the mainland over the several centuries. And and one of the groups that came over is the Hakka group. In Mandarin Chinese, the Hakka stands for Kejia, uh, which is literally the translation, the guest people. Interesting. The Hakka were migrants. Uh, a tribe that started sort of in the northwestern part of China, and they always seem to be the last people to immigrate to a new place. Uh, The legend uh, of the family goes that the Hakka people would stay and farm a place long after all the other tribes left because they were the hardiest and worked the toughest and, Mm. and they spent the most time there. And then when they finally gave up and moved, they always got to a place after everybody else had resettled that location. And so they always the guest people. They always seem to have uh, the, the guest status, not quite there kind of thing. Mm. And uh, it has its own distinct language with many variations and dialects. But the Hakka language uh, is not spoken much by the later generations. Of, How of different people. is it than just speaking Mandarin? Uh, it's actually pretty different. I, I would say... Um, if you know that Cantonese, as opposed to Mandarin Chinese, are both Chinese, but they're linguistically completely different. Hmm. Uh, Hakka is more like Cantonese, but it's not exactly. 
but it also has elements of Mandarin. You know, so for example, if I were counting in Mandarin, it sounds more like 一二三四五 one two three four five, and in Hakka it's 一二三四五 So you see that there's 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 subtle diff- differences, yeah. Right, but the right written languages have always been sort of the Uh, link between the various Chinese dialects, and so the fact that I speak Hakka is actually somewhat of a small miracle. That's cool, though. Yeah, my my generation and younger Hakka people basically all speak Mandarin, speak very little Hakka. But since I came over when I was a child, and this is I, I give my parents tremendous credit for this.、Uh, we came over when we were young, and we, of course, like all immigrant children, had the tendency to want to speak English. Immediately, and you can tell that English is my first language. I, I don't have any accent to speak、yeah. of.、Uh, but what happened was that my parents said, "Look, your grandmother, that is my father's mother,、uh, was never given an education, so she can't read, and she also can't speak Mandarin because they're in the countryside. She only speaks Hakka. So when we go back to Taiwan someday, the only way you're going to be able to communicate with your grandmother." Is if you speak Hakka,、hmm. so we are going to speak Hakka at home, and this is why we're going to speak Hakka at home. And so, in our house, every time we spoke with our parents, we only used Hakka to speak. Sometimes、hmm. we would insert in English words and other words and things like that, but that's what happened. And then we would practice. And my mother、uh, spent half hour to an hour, five days a week, teaching us Chinese at home. Making sure that we would still have the Hakka speaking and the basics of the Mandarin Chinese language, also、uh, reading, writing,、um, and speaking. So you speak English, Mandarin, and Hakka. Yes, I, I speak them not very well, Mandarin and Hakka, sort of you know fifth grade, sixth grade kind of level. But when But I went, could, when you, when you go to visit, you can get by. I, mean, I can get by. And when、cool. I went back for the first time, you know, this is after we had immigrated, and then、uh, we went back to Taiwan when I was a.、Uh, Twelve years old, or something like that. You know,、uh, after we had come back for some time, and I was actually able to speak to my grandmother in Hakka,、mm. which was amazing <laughs>、uh, because many of my cousins at that time, you know, in our generation, sort of teenage kind of years, could not speak to my grandmother, and we could, and it was an amazingly、uh, liberating and, and valuable thing to me. So to this day, I remain very grateful to my parents for. Not only motivating me to learn that language just through,、uh, say, you know, you got to do it because that's who you are, but also、yeah. explaining to us the value and the and the meaning of it, and so、uh, that gave us the impetus that we wanted to to be able to maintain that language. And to this Man, day, I think I, I think that's so wonderful. I really、yeah. do. I love、so、it. I, I, well, you know, it, a fascinating sidebar on this is I was having a discussion with my mother a year or two ago. And and she said, I don't understand why more people don't speak English because it's the most spoken language in the world.、Mm-hmm. And I said, actually, that's incorrect. Mandarin is the most spoken language in the world. So in、mm-hmm. theory, really, we should all be learning how to speak Mandarin if you want、yes. to go by those rules. You know, that's right. And and in fact,、um, more people speak Spanish, I think, than English in the Americas. And there are more than a billion people in India, and they speak English. To some extent, as a second language, many of them. But even the ones who speak English as a first language, their accents and their、um, ways, their grammatical constructions are different from ours. And there are more in- Indian English speakers that speak their way than there are 
American English speakers that speak our way. Yeah, exactly. And this is a whole separate podcast because Americans do tend to think of the world centered around America, like <laughs> in the old days when they thought that, you know, the earth was the center of the universe. Right. Americans tend to think America is the center of the planet and that everything revolves around us. And some well, things really, in fairness, do. They do. But, right. but uh, when it comes to things like this, it's... Uh, and then right. you, you start to explain to them how things really are. Right. And they just kind of look at you like, what? Well, you yeah. And, and I don't want to you know, specifically single out us Americans, right? Everybody thinks that they're the center of things. <laughs> uh, when I was younger, I was actually quite rankled by how my parents and grandparents or the older generation of Chinese people just basically thought that Americans were inferior to Chinese people. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, it, it was it was an ethnocentrism. It's like, well, you know, we Chinese, we're, we're here in America because, you know, we're doing stuff here, but we're really better than they are. You know, um, keep that in mind. You know, we, we're really, we're the civilization that's been around longer. We, we are the ones who, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the, the, that sort of thing. And, and I was like, no, that doesn't sound right. You know, so at the same time, I didn't think it right that uh, people who are Caucasian or people who are American, you know, felt that they were somehow better, right? Mm. And I, being naturalized an American citizen, uh, I consider myself as American as anybody else. Uh, I just happened to uh, have this second or original, if we want to say it, the OG culture uh, from <laughs> which I came. And I am so proud to have all of that, you know, pulled That's awesome. That's a great it's melting what, pot. It's what makes America, America. And, and if you want to think about America as exceptional, I think the one of the very few ways that we actually are exceptional is that the people who are here can all claim uh, American heritage equally, uh, even if they are, or especially if they are, blending in other cultures as well. Well, and then there's the people that were actually here first, Yes. we practically decimated, but that's another and, whole podcast. Oh, no, no. We, we need to remember that. And, and, you know, as our current times have shown us so dramatically, uh, we are just now, after two plus centuries, uh, starting to realize as a country, as a, as a people, if we want to call ourselves an American people, the difference between the ideals that we espouse and the realities on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, we we have to see those things better than we have before, and and the more we see that, the wiser we can be in the long run. We have to really bring up all those folks, and and we we can look back at our past and say, yeah, we really screwed up. Uh, we really did mess up a lot of things, and and what can we do today that will start uh, doing right by all the things that we screwed up in the past? You know, I let, completely let's not, agree with you. Yeah, let's not let's not um, ever forget that we have so many important things to make up for, so many good things we still have and, to do. And let's remember who actually built America, yes. because it's. I think some people forget that as well. That's so, right. That's right. Yeah. Um, we, we have to remember that. And, and there, there have been so many really good social commentators in the past few years that have brought us that knowledge. And, um, just the understanding that none of us do it alone. None yeah. of us have ever gotten where we are because we ourselves are so awesome, right? Yeah. There is so many, uh, there is so much that we owe to everybody 
and generations past and present and that really we need to honor and need to do right by. I'm curious how you became interested in astronomy and astrophysics. <laughs> the Reader's Digest version. Readers, okay. Yeah, sorry. You, you'll no, get, no, no, no. I love to. Well, no, I'm only worried about time for you. That's all. I well, can talk for three hours. I don't care. <laughs> no, no, no. What, one of the characteristics, actually, of ADHD is that, on the one hand, you can't pay attention for long periods of time for something. But on the other hand, if you find something that you really want to pay attention to, you fixate on it and you don't let go. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so that's, that's actually one of the things that happens with me. You you can get me going for something for a really, really long time, and then I don't pay attention to anything else, right? And that's bad. And then you'll be like, and, I got to go. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, I got to go. And, and then, yeah, it, it's fascinating. But uh, it I, I fortunately, the way my own brain works is, is not, it's not a disability. It's not a handicap. It's just the way it works. And I have been very fortunate that I've been able to have all the people around me understand who I am and then uh, embrace me for who I am. And meanwhile, uh, I've been able to live my life in that way, you know, and have a career or have a family life, uh, have interests that have allowed me to uh, revel in those things and take advantage of the way mm. that my brain works uh, rather than have to fight against it. So That's I feel cool. very fortunate that way. But that means that I always appreciate it when people like you, Daniel, tell me, okay, let's move on. <laughs> I had a student once, uh, we were talking about something research-wise, and then uh, I was going off on something, and the student, right, my, my student, um, puts her hand on my elbow and says, I know you're excited. We have to keep moving. Said, yeah, thanks. Yeah. So uh, how uh, did you become interested in astrophysics, astrophysics well, and astronomy? Yeah, to get back into what you actually asked me. Uh, <laughs> no, and I, I actually right. appreciate that because that is fascinating to listen to. I really, um, I'm learning it, a lot, which I love. It, well, it's who I am, right? And and it's who we are. As professors, we teach students. We don't teach material, right? Hmm. Uh, we present material. You know that that's actually a really really fascinating thing to think about for a minute because you just I instantaneously just flash back to my entire education and I can I can tell you that there were some people who taught the material and some people who taught students and mm -hmm. that's a really interesting uh yeah and difference. for you yeah. and for you who were the teachers that mattered the ones who taught students obviously yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. this is actually not an unknown thing to teachers, if you can believe that. You know, basically, um, I'm not going to ask you any more questions the rest of the podcast. We're just going to keep talking. <laughs> and if we get to astronomy, we will. But this is so, so much that. more fun. <laughs> well, um, I got it, 32 it, ounces of iced tea. I, need to go. <laughs> uh, I appreciate your indulgence and patience, Daniel. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the, the, it, it's so, so true. Uh, teachers have, when they are trained in schools of education and things like that, um, they are very clearly informed and reminded continuously that it is the students you are teaching, not the material, right? On the other hand, if you don't have material, then you're teaching nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So teaching is really hard because you need both to be successful. Uh, you have to know that you're teaching a student, but you have to know that the material you're teaching uh, so well that you can present it to the students in a way that helps them learn as students. 
it's it's a really neat multi-dimensional sort of issue and by the way everything i've ever learned about teaching i learned from my wife that's cool uh, amy who yeah she has uh she's a mathematician phd mathematician but she also has the equivalent of an edd uh, doctor of education in math education wow. uh, she had a really unique uh, she was the inaugural student at the University of Arizona uh, in a PhD program where people did high level, you know, real pure mathematics research, as well as research in education and uh, the actual teaching of uh, students. And so, yeah, her knowledge, her, yeah, she's, she's awesome. And, and she basically, <laughs> uh, she would share with me, you know, after she came back from her practica or from her classes and so forth. Hey, did you know that this is the kind of what I was like, Oh, wow, that's cool. And, you know, I'd always love teaching because I just like to talk. Uh, and you know, what, <laughs> what better way to have a captive audience? Right. Yeah. Uh, but my realization that teaching isn't just about talking and entertaining, but thinking about your target and trying to find a way to teach the student rather than just present the material. And, and well, I, it's oh, interesting that you say that because I had a teacher in junior high school named Mr. Sika. Uh -huh. So where, wherever you are out there, Al Sika, I love you and thank you. But he, he taught science. And when we, for I think it was seventh grade, maybe eighth grade, and he used humor quite a bit. And he also used observation with the students. So he did this thing where he was a little bit shorter and he would actually, like first day of class, he would stand up on the tables and he'd walk across the tables where the students were sitting as he's lecturing and he'd say, he'd just crack funny side jokes. Like when I agreed to teach her, I told them I wanted the ceilings made just for my height. Cause he had <laughs> just fit, you know, and he, he would use humor. And then he did things like he handed out a, a 27 page packet and made us, you know, put it face down. And then he said, I want you to read this packet before you fill it out uh -huh. and then bring them up to me when you're done. And so <clears throat> I being a good student, actually read through the entire packet. And at the very bottom of page 27, it says, if you have listened to my directions and have pre-read the packet before filling it out, do not fill anything out. Just bring it up and set it down on my desk. <laughs> and so I just got up after two minutes and sat down and everyone else looked at me like I was crazy. Wow. And, he, he did, and, then, he, and then he did a thing where he had everybody, he would just randomly pick people and say, Jenny, go to the principal's office and tell them I sent you there. And she go, oh, and she'd go, okay. And then, Someone else would talk and he'd say, Bob, go to the principal's office and tell him I sent you there. And I go, okay. And he looked at me and he goes, Daniel, I want you to go to the principal's office as well and tell him I sent you. And I go, why? <laughs> and he goes, exactly. That's the ah! lesson. And, and, and so he goes, we're going to leave those other kids there because they're going to stay the whole class period. They didn't have the, or he sent someone to get them, whatever. But I was the one enough to learn to ask why. And so these are the things he engaged with the students' minds and their creativity and their humor to teach this material. And it was, it was, I've never forgotten it. Al Sika. Al Sika. Hall of Fame educator. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. We, we got to find, look, go, go find Al Sika. If Alfie is still around, send this podcast link. I will. I'll see if I can get him on the show. <laughs> yeah. So, so Chuck, how did you get into astronomy? And okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do that. Uh, as a kid, I really liked everything. Everything. I wanted to study everything. Music, art, uh, sports, science, literature, poetry, technology, everything. So I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was a kid, except just to learn. And 
I was very fortunate that both my parents and my teachers gave me the freedom and the latitude to do that. And I just kept picking up more and more information, finding out more and more cool things that I liked to do and wanted to do, and just did them. By the time I'd say I got into high school, it became pretty clear to me that I liked math and science more than I liked those other things. Hmm. Uh, as much as I enjoyed music, it, I could tell that that would be a high second choice for me as a career, if that makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. I knew that that's what I'd like to do, but that's not going to be what I do all day and all night that makes me you know, uh, happy, makes my soul sing. Uh, although I would really enjoy continue doing it for the rest of my life. And so just over time, these two things, amongst all my other things uh, that I love to do, sort of came to the fore. It was either science and math or music. And so I pursued them both uh, throughout high school uh, vigorously, you know, musical theater where I was, you know, singing on stage and stuff. I can't dance, so I'm a really bad actor. But, uh, you know, the music was cool, uh, musical instruments uh, also, uh, orchestra, whatever, uh, piano, and a lot of math and science. And um, so if you think about parents looking at a kid and saying, where are you more likely to uh, be stably and gainfully employed over a long period of time, um, <laughs> science probably is more likely. Um, and for me, it was 100% likely because I'm not a very good musician, uh, even though I like it very much, you know, unlike you, mm -hmm. Daniel, where you can actually come here and do it for a living. I, I'm pretty sure I could not do that. And so my parents guided me gently toward continuing to do science and stuff. Uh, naturally, uh, their thought was, well, maybe you can be a doctor. You know, maybe you could do, become a physician because that's always a good thing. But they never pressured me. They always like, you know what? You do what you want. You be you. But being a doctor would be really cool if you're, if you're undecided, you know? Yeah. That, well, you are just, a doctor, just saying. Though. Just saying. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But my father, you know, is a scientist, right? And I guess that scientific life. That academic life was something that resonated with me a lot because primarily I could just sit there and learn, right? Just sit there and just keep learning and then share the stuff I learned with other people. I mean, what kind mm -hmm. of life is that? That's pretty awesome, right? It is awesome. I think it's great. It's really awesome. Yeah. And, and, um, and then imagine my delight when I found out later that not only is that something you do in math and science, but also you get to be creative. You get to produce things, you get to describe things, you get to, to show new ways, uh, express new ideas. So the creative aspect of like musical performance or composition or that kind of thing um, was inherently in science as well. And how come no one ever told me that, right? Uh, <laughs> and I was like, this is great. I'm going to do this science thing. I didn't find that out until I was in college. And, and it was in college that I decided to narrow my focus down specifically to astronomy and astrophysics. That's very cool. Uh, because of all the people that I hung out with within my physics scientific community, they were the ones that were the coolest. Uh, they were, the astronomers were the ones that had side gigs uh, as musicians and artists, people who would like hang out together. And, and just, it was the right place for me to be, uh, to be in science and to be creative and enjoying sort of the wonder and the mystery of what I was studying on the most grandiose and the most uh, connected level to everybody and everything. 
And that turned out to be the astronomers. So astronomy is defined by the dictionary as the branch of science that deals with celestial objects, space, and the physical universe as a whole. And uh-huh. astrophysics is defined as the branch of astronomy concerned with the physical nature of stars and other celestial bodies and the application of the laws and theories of physics to the interpretation of astronomical obso- observations. I am Ooh, curious. You got, that, you got that out in one breath. I am very I, impressed. <laughs> thank I don't you. Know. <laughs> now, what I want to know is how would you take all that gobbledygook and would you, how would you make it sound very succinct? And, and, and for the layman out there who just doesn't know anything about science, okay. how would you take all that information and say, this is what astronomy and astrophysics are? All right. Um, I will give you the tongue-in-cheek uh, answer, Please, and I will yeah. also give you the serious answer. Okay. Uh, the difference between astronomy and astrophysics, for me, can best be described by the scenario, which you might imagine where you sit down in an airplane and somebody sits next to you and asks you, hey, so what do you do for a living? And if I want to talk to that person, I say, (laughs) I am an astronomer. And if I don't want to talk to that person, I say, I'm an astrophysicist. (laughs) That is literally the only difference between an astronomer and astrophysicist. Although we may wish to think that. The reality is that 99% of astronomy is physics. Mm. Uh, and, and so there is your, the, the other 1% is very important, mind you. There's astrobiology, astrochemistry, there's engineering, computer instrumentation, all that sort of thing. But 99% of what we study about the universe is physics. And there's your sort of more serious one sentence definition of astronomy and astrophysics is studying the entire universe and all of its contents by extending the laws of nature from earth out into the universe. Okay, but the big question then is why? Why is this important? Why why are people spending their lives studying this when there's world hunger and violence and all these things in the world? Tell me why astronomy is important. Great question. When we as humans are born, we grow up in a crib. Eventually, we go to a bed. As children, we start seeing first what's just in our immediate surroundings. Then we understand what our room, then we understand our home. Then we wander out a little further. We start understanding our communities. We understand schools, our cities, our towns, our country, eventually the world. It is that impulse to know what's going on a little bit further than our limit of understanding that allows us to grow and then allows us to be able to help ourselves and improve our own lives within. When you know what's going on outside in the world, you know how things work, then you improve your life. Then you become what you want to be much more easily than if you only knew what was just in the immediate vicinity of your person. And, and astronomy is the ultimate extension of that. If we only thought about the things that were immediately around us, we would not be able to see the forest for the trees. We wouldn't be able to see solutions to problems in ways that we couldn't have been able to imagine had we not understood how the rest of the world, the rest of the universe works. For, I, I often make the 
pithy statement that astronomy will not change the price of bread today, but it could change the course of civilization tomorrow. Mm. Everything we know, for example, about climate change and global warming originated from our study of other planets. We wondered why Venus, for example, which was so close to us, uh, didn't also have a civilization. We wondered whether there were humans on Mars, right? Or human-like creatures on Mars, or about Venus. Venus was under these white clouds. We couldn't see anything below them. And, and Mars was this red planet, looked like it had channels that might be like canals or something, you know, mm -hmm. could there be humans? So a hundred years ago, uh, there were strong suspicions, very scientifically informed ideas, in fact, that there would be uh, extraterrestrial life on these planets. Uh, there were censuses, people thinking, well, given their size and their uh, temperatures and so forth, you might have this many billions of people living there, this many millions of inhabitants on this planet or that moon, that kind of thing. But then we sent spacecraft there. And when we did actual astronomy, we found that Mars is lifeless. Billions of years ago, the conditions for life as we know it existed on Mars, but today they don't. Hmm. Meanwhile, on Venus, a planet whose geological origins are very similar to ours, very often referred to as Earth's twin, has a surface temperature exceeding a pizza oven. It has a pressure at its surface uh, of its atmosphere. Its atmospheric pressure at its surface is equivalent to the pressure that a submarine feels when it goes down in Earth's oceans to a depth of half a mile. Hmm. It's all carbon dioxide. And we didn't know that. So when I was growing up, you would read all these books and see things about, oh, one day we're going to colonize Mars or we're going to mm -hmm. learn to give Venus a more oxygen-rich atmosphere so we can yep. colonize it. Do you think yep. eventually we'll colonize these planets? This is called terraforming, right? Yep. And, and I'll say this. First thing that I've noticed just in the past few years is that those of us who thought about moving to live on other planets don't use the word colonize much anymore. We talk about moving to other planets or exploring them or immigrating them or, you know, or visiting them or moving to them. We want to integrate ourselves into the environments or the ecosystems or whatever exists of these other places much more than we used to. So the idea of colonizing uh, has, I think, for the better, receded to the idea of visiting or to immigrate, if that makes sense. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I like yeah. it. So I think that's good. In fact, it's NASA- less, It's less conquering than it is more- that, That's, that's so, also yeah. part of it. Yeah, I, I think that's mm -hmm. really true. Uh, NASA actually has an Office of Planetary Protection. Uh, it's not so much a protecting the Earth- from aliens like Independence Day or some other movie, right? But it's actually to protect other places we explore with our machines so that we don't contaminate them unknowingly. Well, part of what you're talking about, I just want to interject, is, is Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, where, mm -hmm. you know, we go to visit Mars and then we end up wiping out their entire civilization because of the common yeah. cold. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, yeah. and you know, this is uh, in... Spoiler in alert, by American, the way. <laughs> yeah, in American civilization, that's okay. But in American history and, and in other native histories and so forth, that's happened a lot, right? We, yeah. uh, uh, we are, um, unfortunately, a species that has had a history of, of spreading disease in a way that has not been very kind to the natives that whom we visit, whether they be human or otherwise. Yeah. Uh, so even 
larger spacecraft like Cassini that orbited Saturn and its moons for many years, or Galileo that orbited Jupiter and its moons for many years. At the end of their lifetimes, when there was only minimal rocket guidance power left, and it looked like that it would be imminent that humans would lose control of the spacecraft, and eventually it would just turn into space junk and eventually crash somewhere uncontrolled. Rather than allow that to happen and have that spacecraft contaminate wherever uh, that space was, NASA actually drove them in to the planets to have them be uh, destroyed. Mm. Uh, and so the long prelude to your short question about will we humans ever wind up on another planet someday is yes, but we're going to be really careful about it. It's going to take cool. us a long time. And I, for one, am very happy that that's the case, that we truly understand it a place before we plant a flag. We were in Prague recently, and we got to see the big astronomical clock there, which is world famous. It's the third oldest astronomical clock in the world. And, it, yes. and I, when I knew I was going to be talking to you, I wanted to ask you, how are the tools that ancient astronomers used like these old clocks and stuff different than the tools today? And obviously, the telescope goes back quite a long time. Long, long way, but how are the tools different? And are the, many of the tools still the same, just modern versions? Many tools are the same, just modern versions. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if there are totally, truly brand new things uh, that are used by most astronomers today, although there are such things that could not possibly have existed hundreds of years ago, right? Uh, the clock is actually extremely important. Uh, the ability to measure time, measure distance, uh, these fundamental yardsticks, uh, shall we say, of our universe is actually very complicated and very difficult. That's really mm -hmm. important. Uh, but we, if we can measure time uh, as accurately as possible, then we know how long things take to move. From there, we can figure out how far away they are. Right? We can't exactly take a tape measure and run it from the earth <laughs> to the sun. And so we have to find other ways, geometric ways, uh, uh, trigonometric ways. You know, if you want to wonder how useful your math is when you're in, in high school, right? These are the examples. We want to learn about our world, our universe. That's where these tools become very useful. So in a sense, there's been new mathematics that have been invented, but in the end, it's still an attempt to build on the old math. There's new timepieces. We now use atomic vibrations in order to measure time to within a billionth of a second, but mm. it's still to measure time. And telescopes in the end uh, are there to gather light. We are increasing the gather light gathering power of our eyes, which are small, uh, but if we put them in a telescope, they get big. Uh, that's the kind of thing that's brand new, uh, but still rooted in the old. Uh, some cool. of the, re yeah, some of the really, really brand new stuff, including, for example, the gravitational wave discoveries that have been in the news over the past few years. Um, that's new. And uh, also when we try to figure out the fundamental particles in the universe, uh, things like the Higgs boson, for example, yeah. um, which you've got not a lot of news about lately. That's subatomic particle technology. That's what they that call a God particle, right? Yes. Yes. Although that is a, a misnomer. As many people know, uh, the original use of that term was not the God particle, but the God bleep 
particle. <laughs> and what happened was that the editors of the book that the author wrote wanted to write about the God bleep particle. Uh, they said it would probably sound better if we just left the bleep word out and we just call funny. it the God particle. And that's well, a funny great. story for you though. There's uh -huh. this, so the Henson company has a really funny show called puppet up uh -huh. and it's, it's Muppets for adults. Okay. And they, and it's two shows in one. There's the show where you're watching the puppeteers and then there's, they have a camera on the actual puppets on a big screen. And if you ever get a chance anywhere in the world that you hear me say this, go see puppet up. It's an amazing show, but anyway, okay. they do a thing. They work with the audience quite a bit. And so they were like, we want the audience to throw out some random things that we're going to improv. And they go, give us an item. And I yelled, the God particle. <laughs> and all the performers just stopped and looked at each other like, what is the, okay, okay. <laughs> and um, and so then they, they actually pulled this little Muppet out, which was like a stick with this fluffy, like little Carl Sagan ship of the imagination dandelion seed thing on it that ah. flopped all around. And they made that the little God particle. And they did a whole skit about this particle and it was absolutely hilarious wonderful yes that, that's the best when when oh my gosh what a great performance i, I have to show up for people like that uh, when, when they have those kinds of uh, improvisational performances of that quality it, it it's um so inspiring I, I gotta tell you we we gotta i i have to learn how to do improv that that's something oh, that i best. think would be so much fun um, well, you know, I tell anybody who ever works as a teacher, when, whenever anyone has any career where they're in front of people, yeah. I tell them that you should absolutely take an acting 101 and an improv 101 class because they just they just give you little gifts that allow you to do things on the fly that you don't think of doing normally. Oh, I think that that's wonderful. I think that's great. And and also like when jazz musicians Impro uh, are are so so good at improvisation mm -hmm. uh, when when they go off on their solos and so forth. That that is also so impressive to me. Yeah, completely. And, and yeah. You can just tell that it's a you know in the moment kind of thing where they're really expressing themselves. They've prepared and they've practiced a lot, but the 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 beauty of the moment is just uh, so intangibly amazing. Yeah. So uh, you study colliding galaxies, quasars, and the star formation history of the universe on, yes. on paper. Right. Uh, why did you decide to specialize in those things? Hmm. Well, I think it's because I think planets are too small and too close. Interesting. I like them. I mean, obviously, I live on one, <laughs> right? So it's not that I don't like them. Uh, I also, you know, really like <laughs> the big theoretical questions, but they sometimes are too speculative too. The theoretical stuff in college, as I was studying them, I came to the conclusion that I enjoyed looking through telescopes and looking at data more than I preferred looking just at the numbers. Uh, and or the the calculations and the equations. So that was one decision of why I didn't go in the theoretical direction. Uh, I like to use telescopes, but I didn't like to build them. Some people would like to build them, so I didn't do that. And then the close-in things like stars and planets, like I said, they're kind of small and faint. I, I wanted more grandiose stuff. Well, so I'm, I'm just curious, in your career so far, have there been some major significant discoveries that you and your colleagues have made? Oh, so many. Um, and, what's, one and of the, what's one of the big ones? There have been so many wonderful discoveries. One of the really amazing ones is that we figured out how old the universe is. 
to within mm. 1%. If you realize that you may not know the ages of many of your friends to a precision of 1%. To 1%, I mean, yeah. I know their age, but not yeah, to, yeah. Right. I mean, 1% is pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And And the universe... That would be like walking up to your friend and go, oh, you're 49, uh, three months, two days, and 16 hours old today. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, it's amazing how we've been able to do that. And that's a process that's gone on for a long time. But in my lifetime, I basically saw that evolve and happen uh, as people kept finding ways to sort of narrow down how old the universe was. And then as we continued to move further and closer and closer, we saw these things happening. In the process of finding out how old the universe is, we've learned so much about what we don't know about the universe. Mm-hmm. And that may be uh, sort of the big lesson, right? Because we got the big number, but then in the process, we realized that first of all, uh, for every pound of matter there is in the universe that's made up of protons and neutrons and electrons, there's five times that much matter that we don't know what it's made of. Huh. It's out there doing stuff to the universe It's moving galaxies and stars and planets all over in this sort of huge cosmic dance in the large-scale structure of the universe, but we don't know what it is. And then, yeah, and then beyond that, all that matter, both the dark matter that we don't know and the luminous matter that we do know, uh, is still only one-third or so, or even one-quarter, of all the content of the universe, the amount of energy that's floating around in there that's causing our universe to expand the way it does uh, is substantially greater than the stuff that we're made of. Well, speaking of all this matter, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, uh, go ahead. Speak about the matter. Well, I was going to ask you about the Big Bang, but go ahead and finish that thought. The, The thought is that in the process of finding out how old the universe is, we're, we're not done. We, we just opened new questions. We, we was like, okay, we now know the universe is 13.8 plus or minus 0.1 billion years old. You know, and that's wonderful. But now 95% of what's out in the universe is completely unknown to us. So we have much, much more to do. It is mind boggling. And that is amazing. Really, it's exciting, man. I mean, I'm sorry that stuff. That stuff. That's the nerd in me, but that stuff gets me very excited. I think it's so cool. It should know? get all of us excited. Uh, it's the same. Uh, Albert Einstein actually once wrote. This is in 1930, I think he he wrote this. Um, that that source of of awe when we look at things in the universe and are just amazed and inspired. That is the core of all true art and science. Mm-hmm. And, and in that way, you know, the ability to achieve inspiration by thinking about crazy things, uh, things that other people might say, well, that, that's not right, but you know that it's cool and it's there. Um, that is uh, a true driver of everything we do. Uh, you asked me earlier what, what astronomy uh, why doing astronomy is cool, right? It, aside from the fact that we really gain so much out of it in terms of knowledge. Uh, You're supposed is, to say it's the chicks, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me not discount that possibility either. But, but really, we, uh, you know, we are inspired to do astronomy uh, and research about the universe in the same impulse that artists are inspired to produce art and musicians are inspired to produce music. Uh, it's that higher level impulse, I think, that drives astronomy. That's awesome. 
Uh, well, I was going to ask you earlier uh, about the Big Bang and say, do you believe wholeheartedly in the Big Bang, or do you believe that one day science may discover, oops, nope, that was wrong. That's not how <laughs> things started. We have a whole new theory now of how the universe started. Um, let me um, preface my answer by uh, focusing on the word believe for a second, because uh, for scientists, belief comes from examining the evidence and seeing that the evidence confirms this idea, a hypothesis or a theory, right? So do I believe that the Big Bang occurred? The answer is yes, because the scientific evidence for it, both in the motion of things in the universe and the composition of the matter of the universe and the energy distribution of the universe, clearly point to the time when the universe began existing as it does today, hmm. as a tiny, tiny point, and then growing into what it is now. Okay, so in that sense, the Big Bang is definitely to be believed. The question that a lot of people have about whether the Big Bang happened or not, or whether you believe in the Big Bang, is couched in less scientific terms. Because we think of uh, the creation of the universe as something uh, mysterious or divine and if it's not mysterious or divine, but rather just, uh, you know, something that happened, uh, like everything that happens every day, sun rising, setting and whatnot, then somehow the mystery of the universe is reduced. Or somehow that means that we are not divine or that there isn't a divinity uh, in the universe. And, and I, what I want everyone to know is that the Big Bang's existence, the scientific explanation of how the universe came into existence or what the universe has done since it came into existence, uh, does not in any way remove the beauty and the mystery. There's still tremendous uncertainty. We still don't know exactly why, for example, the Big Bang happened. Uh, there's a lot of space to continue to feel that there is something cool out there like that might be divine or that may be uh, worth believing that there's something greater than what we understand. Well, can I, wait, can I interject and ask you a question about this? Yeah, sure. So if I, if I, and, and go with my analogy here for a second, if you sure. and I, if you and I sat down in a completely empty room, there's just four walls, cement floor, cement ceiling, and there's nothing else there. And I took a firecracker and set it, in the middle of the room and lit it. And then you and I just sat there and watched it go poof and explode. Right. Yeah. yeah. So now let's pretend for one second that that firecracker is the big bang. Okay. And now that cloud of smoke that comes out of the big bang is all the matter of the universe that now starts expanding and forming all this incredible stuff that we see and, and study. Yeah. My question is what was there before the big bang? Mm hmm. And then, and will it, and will the universe eventually stop expanding? Will it end? Will all life in the universe just eventually cease to exist? Or, or is this something that uh, has always been and will always be, you know? And I know you don't probably have these answers, but that's where my mind, my mind goes, well, if there was a big bang, I, all I visualize is a firecracker explosion. Is, is God then the person that put the firecracker in the room? If God exists, if God doesn't exist, then what was there? Was there nothing there? And then the concept that there could be, literally nothing. I can't get behind it. I can't, I cannot, my brain cannot understand the idea of 
literally nothing? No, these are great questions, Daniel. And in fact, that's one of the the set of queries that I get from my students most often when I teach Big Bang cosmology stuff. Uh, the the answer to your question basically has to extend beyond physics as we currently understand it. We have to introduce new ideas about what space and time are in order to fit our understanding of the Big Bang into the universe. So, for example, when you talk about the lighting of the firecracker, what we're doing is in space, in this room, right, we have created a thing. And that thing has been expanding after you light that firecracker. But you were originally in the room. Right. Yeah. So that Big Bang event was not the beginning of anything in the room, but it was the beginning of the existence of that explosion. So the Big Bang would be the beginning of this universe, but there could be other universes. Correct. Okay. And those universes will not be like ours. You know, our, our universe is basically length, width, height, time, right? right? Four-dimensional space-time. For something to go from a four-dimensional space-time into another four-dimensional space-time is sort of like an inflation of space and time within an existing universe. Does that make sense? Yes. So another universe could have existed, and we just simply wound up being expanded within it, inflated within it. But we could also be the firecracker of some other universe. That's Correct. What we perceive as God is just some kid in a room lighting a firecracker. It is altogether possible that on some grandiose way, <laughs> right, on some grandiose level, that is the case. But, you know, who's the kid, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and where is this kid? If, if our universe didn't begin until the firecracker was lit, then that means time as we measure it did not exist. Does that make sense? Space mm-hmm. as we measured it did not exist. So if something else did exist, then it would have to transcend our four-dimensional space-time. And so ideas such as string theory or membrane theory have come forward. These are mathematical constructs uh, where you can imagine a five-dimensional thing and another five-dimensional thing coming together at a point. Think of like soap bubbles that are sort of far apart and then they suddenly come together and they touch each other and they form a skin, right? Mm. The soap bubbles are each three-dimensional, but the skin that they create when they touch is a two-dimensional thing, right? So can two five-dimensional membranes touch and create a four-dimensional space-time? And so is the Big Bang actually just two soap bubbles touching, but on a grandiose scale? Right. Wow. These these are the questions that we're talking about here. Right. And, and your 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 point about God being some kid who lights a firecracker is a great point. A scientist will basically say, "All right, let's go with that hypothesis. Let's run with the hypothesis that God is the kid who lights a firecracker, and we have to be living <laughs> in that firecracker." This unit. is a great T-shirt, by the way. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's let's say that's the case. Okay. Then let's ask questions about what God is. Does that mean that there are many gods? Does that mean that God is just one out of billions of God-like creatures uh, and, and they have parents like we do? Uh, and, and do they do the same things we do? do? Do they sit on Mount Olympus and argue with one another, right? 
Are we their pawns? Or do they not even know that we exist? Mm. Uh, or is there just one God? Or is, uh, you know, are, are there actually no gods? And this is just something that got set into motion because of the nature of space and time. Or that uh, there is no sentience as we understand it. Is that God intelligent? Is that kid, uh, a smart kid who was like, oh, I'm going to light a firecracker. Uh, and then uh, in that firecracker, uh, equals mc squared and there's going to be planets that are going to be this big and then there's going to be people who are this big and this is how they're going to live and they're going to evolve and they're going to uh slowly become able to go through space and then wonder what the deal is with their firecracker um you know did this kid who light it actually think about all that or did this kid just sort of light it and walk away and, and then whatever happened happened right and so wait, does it ever bother you that you will likely never know the answers to these questions unless there is a God and you die and you suddenly are aware of all things in the universe. It doesn't bother me at all. It, it inspires me. Hmm. I have had students over the years. Actually, I remember very clearly one particular student uh, who did research with me, very intelligent, mathematically, very skilled. And uh, at the end of the summertime, when she was working with me, uh, I asked her, so, you know, little, little exit interview. So how does, how did it all go? Uh, what do you think, how you want to go forward and so forth? And she said, I've decided that I really like doing this work, but I'm never going to do it for a career because really? the uncertainty is too much. I need to know, is there a right answer or a wrong answer? And, and so I think uh, she became a, uh, a mathematical engineer, like someone who actually was figuring out specific answers to specific questions about a certain machine or a certain system, things like that. So that worked out very well for her. Good. But different people have different opinions, right? Uh, I revel in uncertainty. I mean, I am an agent of uncertainty. I have been since I was a kid, as you know. <laughs> um, but other people really prefer certainty. And for those folks to have something like a faith-based tradition, right? a religion, shall we say, or some kind of philosophical or ethical path to behave because it is the right thing to do, because it has been written, because someone said so. You know, that is a very comforting and important thing. Uh, mm -hmm. We all human beings, we, we all have different ways of, um, different ways of interacting with the unknown or making peace with what we do not understand, right? And, and in, some cases, the best thing to do is to find a doctrine or an idea that uh, sort of dictates or it at least guides with us. You. Yeah, right. And then for others, it's kind of like, oh, man, let's find out what it is. Let's go for it, you know. Uh, and then we all, of course, have some mixture of that, some combination uh, of things. Do you things think that, we... that we're going to find intelligent life in the universe in our lifetime? Yep, I do. Uh, but the caveat as is always the case with all science, we must have the caveat. I do think we will find intelligent life in the universe, but I don't know if we'll recognize it. Interesting. We have exactly one model of how life works. We have exactly one model of how intelligence works, right? And so what we're doing is wondering how we look for things that look like us or think like us or have biological processes like us. And it has been very successful, at least from our point of view, this DNA-based, carbon-based, uh, you know, temperate temperature type evolution by natural selection-based life 
that has gotten us to the intelligence that we perceive ourselves to have. But the universe is a big place. And the laws of science, laws of nature, allow almost infinite numbers of combinations and permutations of things to happen. When we were looking for solar systems outside our own, we were looking for things that had, say, terrestrial planets, you know, things like Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars near their stars, and then larger gas giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus and Neptune away from their stars. They were looking for uh, basically solar systems like our own. And so far, uh, in the past 25 years or so, uh, we astronomers have found more than 4,000 solar systems out in our galaxy. And not one of them looks like ours. None of them have the same kind of structure that we do. Fascinating. So if we find 4,000 intelligent uh, civilizations out there, but if they don't look like ours, will we even know they're intelligent? Are they finding ways to do things that we can't even recognize? Yeah, what if they're beings of light and energy and we don't see them because we don't mm -hmm. have the ability to see that spectrum or whatever? Right. Yeah. Our physics and our chemistry and our biology is a great example of how life in the universe can happen, but it's only just one example. So I believe that our technology and our curiosity will lead us to be able to find or see these civilizations or intelligent life, shall we say. I don't even know if they would have civilizations. They're like, how quaint civilizations. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just don't even know. And, and so that's, I think, where we are today in, in my thought process. And, and so I would like to see something we can recognize, but I don't know that we'll find that. 50 words or less. What is the most valuable insight you think you've learned from your career so far? I can have the crappiest day and still know that it's no big deal. I love it. That's the great. Universe, the universe, the, jeez, I'm amazed that I did that in less than 50 words. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, right? Um, by knowing so much, this goes back to my analogy previously about like being a kid or a baby in a, a crib, yeah. leading to being a kid in a neighborhood, then an adult in a society, you know, that kind of thing. By knowing what's out there and how much is out there and all the cool things and how I fit into that in some small way. I know that my own personal existence is just a cool thing and is really no big deal. All the other stuff that can or will happen, stresses and concerns are completely temporary. They're minor. What matters is how I'm in the universe and how I conduct myself when I'm in the universe. That's a um, lesson that I, I wish all of humanity knew. Yes. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Yes. I mean, obviously, it's 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 very uh, idealistic, right? Yeah. How did you get involved with Neil and doing Star Talk? Ah, Neil and Star Talk. Neil and I have known each other a long time. Um, when the Rose Center for Earth and Space was being first constructed, this was 1990s, late 1990s. Neil was the director of the Hayden Planetarium, and my wife and I, and at that time our daughter, because we only had one child. Uh, moved to uh, New Jersey in order to have Amy, my wife, uh, take a faculty position. And I, uh, having received my PhD around that same time as well, uh, was kind of casting my lot around for uh, jobs, things to do. Uh, my 
uh, I had I had uh, turned down a position to work in Arizona so that we could follow Amy to New Jersey. And it's absolutely the right decision. It was a mm-hmm. wonderful job. Uh, and so I came here and several months before I had talked to my friends and uh, senior colleagues whom I had not met yet, uh, taught them about the fact that I was coming to New York, that I was interested in finding a way to do astronomy and it didn't have to be a conventional way. Uh, and I was happy to try different things because I was so interested in and curious about things like the arts and how they interact with sciences and communications, education, all that sort of thing. Sure. So um, in the process of that conversation, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, senior colleagues for whom I remain very grateful, uh, Jacqueline Van Gorkum at Columbia University, she said, yeah, come work with me. I'll, I'll, I'll pay you, um, you know, a postdoctoral salary and, and we can do some science here in New York. And another one of her colleagues, uh, also at Columbia, uh, David Helfand, who, for whom I'm also going forever grateful, um, said, hey, uh, I happen to be on the science advisory committee of the construction of the New Hayden Planetarium. And uh, the folks who are designing that, there's a museum firm uh, who would like to have a, a doctoral level scientist help them with the exhibit design uh, part time. Cool. Would you like to do that? And I was like, yeah, sure. So um, then I, I started working with that museum design firm. And uh, the museum design firm, of course, had regular meetings with the director of the planetarium uh, and happened to be Neil Tyson. And so we started chatting and having meetings together and having conversations. And then we became uh, friends and he said, yeah. come on my show. And, and eventually Neil said, you know, hey, uh, we are starting an astrophysics department here at the American Museum of Natural History that will support the Hayden Planetarium's activities so that the planetarium isn't just a, a, an educational thing, but it's actually a research uh, arm of the museum. Would you like to be part of it? And I was like, gee, uh, that's great, <laughs> but, but I don't know. You know, I... I I'm an academic guy. I really want to be a professor. And you know, if I go to a museum and doing stuff, you know, what am I? What's what's going to happen? And Neil uh, convinced me that it was worth the risk. Well, I I, I don't know if you sent my you saw my note when I sent you the stuff on the podcast, but I think you should have a podcast for yourself and oh. call it Here, "Here's Looking at Lou." <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. No, no. <laughs> uh, uh, that's very kind of you. Uh, thank you, Daniel. I. I do like communicating what I love to people. Um, podcast is a lot of work, though. It is. You know? like it is. You, more you, than people realize. <laughs> you, uh, you know, you're someone who's a, an expert in this kind of communication, and and I'm sure you could give me some tips on what a, a podcast entails. The first thing I know that is it's a way lot more work than just some guy standing in front of a microphone. It, it also depends if you're doing it by yourself or you got a team of people working for you like anything in life, you know? So if you have the right team working with you, it's not, it's not nearly as stressful as doing everything yourself. But um, I'm just curious, does it bother you when you watch TV and movies and you see science being represented completely incorrectly? All the time. Bugs <laughs> the crap out of me. I, I can't watch some movies because of that. Um, and and afterwards, I'll complain about, well, it's not this and it's not that. And, and my family would be like, dude, it's just a movie. <laughs> but in the in the end, it really is just a movie. And it would be nice if it got they got everything right. But And I've never understood why they don't just consult with scientists and say, how do we do this correctly? Because I don't think it's actually difficult to do, especially with the technology we have today. It's not hard. And, and yeah. even, you know, for the, all kinds of things. Like, like my daughter, who is a classicist, you know, she's trained in, in sort of Roman, ancient Roman history and, and all that mm. sort of thing. 
it would not be hard for those period pieces that have Roman gladiators and stuff actually to do things the way that Rome actually did them. They don't bother. It bothers her too. She's like, you know, maybe as a side hustle, I could just go out to Hollywood and and tell people, hey, folks, if you're going to do something, period, call me. Yeah, she probably made a fortune. I asked my stepfather was in the Navy and I asked him when he was watching, it was one of the big war movies came out. And I said, was it accurate? And he said, you know, it was so funny. They got, they must have had a consultant because they got 99% of all the Navy stuff right, except for one thing. And I go, what's that? And he said, at the time in which that movie took place, all the colors, like the Navy colors, whether it's gray or blue, I forget which one it is today, but um, he said they had actually, they hadn't switched yet to the modern color. So oh. all, all the offices and the buildings would have been like Navy blue and they had them all gray or whatever oh, it was. They, no. got, they got that one thing wrong. So that was really funny. But um, well, hey, so, so your wife is a mathematician. You have three kids and, yes. and one of your bios online, it says they're all smarter uh, than you are. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I'm just curious. With such a great life and career and all stuff, do you feel like you have life, career, family all just figured out? Like, do you think you have life figured out? No. No, 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 no. Not at all figured out. <laughs> I think, I think the, the right way to put it is that I've found one or two or three things that are true and that work. Hmm. And like? everything else stems from that. So there are continuous mysteries that keep popping up things that I can't figure out, things that I don't know. But whenever those things happen, I go back to those one or two or three core things. I have a core and, thing, and actually. Yeah. And it's it's that there is no such thing as good opera. <laughs> <laughs> I totally disagree. <laughs> Mommy, oh, Mr. Kusome. No, 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 no. There's very good opera. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Te- no, no, no. Well, what's one, what's one of those core things? Can you share? One, one of those core things is that when there is a choice between something in my career and something for my family, you always choose the family. Mm, that's beautiful. And, and what happened was that every time I did that, my career improved. Yep. It was amazing how that worked out, but I, I'm a very fortunate individual that way, but also the realization that the family helped make my career at all times. I don't think of work and life as two pieces on a balance that you have to sort of get right. I think of life as a a Venn diagram where you have pieces in your life, work here, family here, and they all kind of interact and intersect. And so there's no reason why choosing one means you must exclude the other. And that's sort of uh, the impetus that I have when I make my decisions. Uh, Maybe right now, uh, the part of the Venn diagram that has a particular work project increases temporarily, or at Mm -hmm. other times, some family priority increases temporarily. But they're all part of this Venn diagram called life. Chuck, if you weren't an astrophysicist, what would you be? (laughs) Um, A teacher of anything. A teacher of anything. Um, I I don't care what you say. Uh, I'll just go teach it. Um, And what if you couldn't do teaching? What would you do? uh, Mope. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be a podcast host. (laughs) I I would sit, uh, yeah, I'd probably try to write stuff. Um, I would probably create as much as I could and put it out there to the world 
And I don't know if I could make a living out of it, but I would say, hey, everybody, here's some cool stuff. Uh, please, you know, take a look. Uh, that's cool. That's probably what I would want to do. What would be the title of your autobiography? Um, just an astronomer guy. I, I was hoping you were going to say that because the <laughs> intro. I love, way to bring that full circle, man. That's awesome. <laughs> well, speaking of books, I know you've authored and co-authored several books, including the award-winning uh, One Universe at Home in the Cosmos. Yes. And I'm curious, do you have any new stuff that's going to be coming out? Well, um, I have just turned in the text for a book called You Are Here. Mm. Uh, and it's being done by uh, Ivy Press in the UK. And it is essentially a timeline of the universe starting from the Big Bang to the present day and into the future. It's a map of the history of the universe with all the cool things that happen in it and the story of how the universe got to where we are today and where we can expect to go in the future. Well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, it should be fun. I, I really enjoyed writing it because you know you get to throw in everything, uh, not just the cool stuff about uh, the science and so on, but also the human aspect of things. Because mm -hmm. history is from the eyes of the people who experience it and who tell it. And so I was really awesome. able in this book uh, to uh, work both with the science that is so fun to present, but also the humanity of history, which is really cool. Love it. What was your favorite childhood book? I can't think of one. Uh, probably one of my comic books. Uh, nice. Which comics did you read? I'm a big comic book reader. Little, little bit of everything. Um, cool. Mostly Marvel and DC. Uh, I, I predate Image Comics and and some of those. Uh, you know, um, you and I both. Yep. Yeah. Those those are good times. Uh, and and these days, you know, I, I love to see all the creative things that are going on uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or DC and and the TV shows and things like that. It's fun. It's not exactly what I remember or you know my comfort food of that period of time, but, uh, I love it. It's still book. fun. Yeah. 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 Um, hard to say there's so many, yeah, I, I not much of a reader. Uh, I get right. through books real well, but comic books. Yeah. Is there any book or books that you think should be mandatory reading for all human beings? Nope. Uh, read whatever you want. Uh, can you name a movie you saw that makes you cry? Chocolat. Ah, oh, it's a great movie. When when Vienne bowl breaks, and she's running away, and 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 her mother's ashes scatter on the stairway, and the daughter who was so angry and unhappy at that point, just to to comfort her mother, uh, gathers the, sh the 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 ashes. Like, no, it's okay. We'll do it. It'll be perfect this time. Let's go. And, 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 you know, that already was like, oh, this daughter, you know, and then they go downstairs and then she opens the door and her friends are all there cooking. And I was like, oh. great movie. Yeah. Everyone has downtime or tough days. I'm curious. What do you do when you have a bad day to get out of the funk? Uh, I go out and take a walk. And then um, I also, uh, if I can't take a walk or whether or not I can take a walk, I, I go to uh, my wife, Amy. And I tell her, I have a really crappy day. <laughs> and then she gives me a hug and then we chat. It's all good. That's awesome. Uh, here on earth, is there somewhere that you want to travel that you've never been? Many, many, many places. Pick a place, I'll go there. Uh, that, see, that is the best attitude. <laughs> it really is. That, that's kind of how I actually approach travel. People are like, where do you want to go next? Like, I don't know, throw a dart at the map and I'll try to go there. That's, yeah, you know. that is the right way. I agree. Uh, what are your hobbies? 
uh, a lot of music, um, a, a little bit of everything else. Well, that was an easy answer. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's eight o'clock at night. You have the house to yourself and you're going to put on some music and dance around like a crazy man. What would be your jam? Whatever shows up. I, I could do classical. I could do jazz. I can do rock, pop, heavy metal. Uh, you pick it. I would enjoy it. I'll dance like no one's watching. Do you have a favorite food? No. I have many, 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 many foods that I enjoy. <laughs> on any given day, I would love them, especially if Amy's cooking them, because she is like one of the most talented people in the kitchen that I know. That's awesome. I, I also feel the same way. There's a lot of food I love, but last ah. meal on earth, if you had to choose, what would you eat? Whatever Amy cooks. Oh, that's such a cheesy answer, Chuck. I know, right, I know, but it's right, true. Fine. You can't, you put me in, in a position. I don't. I just don't have one thing that I like so much more than the other stuff. I mean, it's just fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Sorry be a about that. It'd be a smorgasbord. All right. <laughs> there you so, go. So uh, you can thank my better half, Jolene, for this question. If you okay. could sit down for four hours in an old timey pub with one person from all of human history, alive or dead, excluding your own family members or any religious prophets. Who would you like to sit with? What would you drink together? And what's the first question you would ask them? Oh, my gosh. I would sit with Galileo Galilei. Uh, we would drink a very good Italian uh, Chianti. <laughs> and the first question I would ask him is, so tell me about your daughter. Why? That's awesome. That's a great oh. question. <laughs> Galileo uh, was a true Renaissance man, a person who wrote incredibly well, who thought about science, who thought about art, who philosophy, tremendous. But one thing that Galileo did was that when he had the chance to stay in Italy uh, in a part of Italy that was protected by the Doge of Venice and thus immune largely to the kinds of things that he was de dealing with later in his life from the Inquisition because he, he his ideas about the universe sort of broke uh, Catholic dogma. Um, he wound up going back to Florence, the place of his birth, uh, and his daughters wound up becoming a nun. Hmm. Uh, her his oldest daughter was uh, if I remember her name correctly became known as Sister Maria Suor Celeste uh, and over the period of her adult life uh, she and Galileo had a correspondence uh, which lasted their lives it was a beautiful sort of discussion of father-daughter relationship and, and all those kinds of things. She remained very, very devoted to him throughout. And you could really tell that whatever gruff exterior Galileo had, there was this, um, this spot uh, in his heart for Maria Suor Celeste. And uh, Deva Sobel, uh, who is a well-known author, wrote actually a book called Galileo's Daughter. And wow, how fascinating. Sort of explored that story. But of course, these are all, you know, centuries old documents now. And, yeah. and I have a daughter as well, you know, and there is, I think, a special relationship between a father and a daughter. And the thing that I would just want to know is tell me about your daughter. Talk, talk to me about that. Uh, Galileo being a person whose professional exploits in many ways I have admired greatly. And 
and this relationship with a daughter. I, I would just love to see that and hear about that and, and try to understand it a little bit. I love the story about him when he said, and yet it moves. Yes. And, uh, that's one of my favorite. <laughs> we'll leave that for the podcasters to go research on their own. <clears throat> um, or the listeners, I mean. Uh, if you could travel in time, where would you go? Oh, man. These are such hard questions. I, I don't... <laughs> Uh, there's nowhere. Pick pick a time. I'll show up. What if you're in the time machine? You just you got to pick one forward or forward or back. At least, what would you rather see first? Forward. Okay. Do you yeah. Think you know how far you'd go? Uh, how about five years, and then I'd see which stocks went <laughs> through the roof, and I'll go back and invest. That's a great idea. What's your guilty TV pleasure? Do you have one? Uh, no. Uh, none of my TV pleasures are guilty. I, uh, happily expose them to everyone because I think they're cool. And, and the one that I really, really like to watch is real estate shows, uh, showing places that are warm and have lots of ocean and sand. Nice. Uh, I am very curious. What is one quality about human beings that you admire the most? Kindness. Are you afraid of dying? No. If you died tomorrow, what would be your biggest disappointment? That I had so many other cool things I could have done and didn't get them done yet. Yeah, I know. Me too, man. I'm not afraid <laughs> of dying. I'm afraid of not being able to do all the things I want to do. Right. And that's not even a fear. That's just a realization, right? I mean, but, yeah. but mortality is one of those things that astronomers get um, they, they get very uh, understanding of that. Because on the one hand, we know that the stars far outlive us, right? Uh, and that we far outlive mayflies and mm -hmm. time is just a thing and, and different <laughs> organisms and different uh, entities and objects have different lifespans. It's just the way it is. So on the one hand, it's kind of like a very um, cosmic connection of the way. And the other thing we know that is that the universe is always changing. Things are always being born and things are always dying. And we're just part of that. I just want to really enjoy and do what I want to do before I get it done. If heaven exists and assuming that you arrive, what would you like to hear God say the moment that you meet? Oh, um, you well, really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Uh, I think it would be, uh, welcome to heaven. Uh, Amy's going to be here shortly. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I hope shortly means like a very, very long time by, by earth standards. But for me in earth, in heaven, it would be short. A few moments later. Yeah. Yeah. What superpower would you choose? The ability to know the right thing to do at any given time. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. I've never, no one said that on the show. That's great. Oh, okay. uh, if, <laughs> if you could tell your younger self anything, you could go back in time to see, you know, 16 year old Chuck sitting there. What would you tell him? I would say, Chuck, uh, Keep on keeping on, but just be kind to people. Just be as nice to people as you possibly can. That's wonderful advice. And I agree, actually. If I could go back in time, I would tell myself two things. I would say three things. I would say the anger is not worth it. Mm -hmm. Be kind to people mm -hmm. and invest in Amazon. Amazon! <laughs> Amazon! Oh. Amazon. I myself prefer Apple, but it's basically the same story. Is it, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. In all your interviews and public appearances that you've done so far in your life, is mm -hmm. there a question that people have never asked you, but you wish they did? No. Everyone has always asked amazing questions, and I've always been happy to answer them. Maybe, maybe 
next time you and I get together, you can uh, ask me a question that I wish I'd been asked. But I'll, I'll, I'll try. I'll try to come up with. It. I'm going to come up with something really strange and weird <laughs> and fun. Um, well, what's next for you? Next, uh, I've got a lot of grading to do. Um, <laughs> I have I have some uh, classes to teach, and I'm looking forward to just going on. Being a professor gives me the opportunity to have a sort of a stability in life, knowing what I'm going to be doing next. Uh, but at the same time, having the freedom to explore every single thing I'm curious about. That's yeah. so awesome. Yeah, I'm very, and, very fortunate that way. Yeah, I say a real privilege that I think not everyone gets to to live with their life, and it's such a such a wonderful thing. Yeah, I recognize my privilege in that respect, and I try to enjoy it every day. Well, Chuck, the last thing we do on the show is a little game I have called 299 Philosophical and Life Questions with Moonbird. I actually have a list here of 299 wow. Philosophical and Life Questions. You get to pick two numbers, and I'm going to read you those two questions. What are your two numbers? Okay. <laughs> Pressure's on. Game oh show. Oh, my gosh. 299 of them, huh? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pick numbers uh, 298 and 297. Ooh, excellent. Okay, let me scroll here for a minute. So you said 298 and 297. Now, mm -hmm. I will tell you what's amazing is that these are it, – it's – not as often as I would like, we get new questions. These are both new questions for the show. Yes. So no one's ever <laughs> right. asked before. And, and do you I have a time limit on how fast I have to answer these? Nope. Okay. All right. No. So one of them we've already sort of covered, but if you have to turn it, <clears throat> which oh, is- Wait, 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 wait. If, if there's one that we've sort of covered, pick a different one. Okay, great. So then yeah, give yeah. me a different number. Uh, 296. Okay, great. Uh, that's even better. And uh, let me see. Hold on. Okay. So these are both still questions that have not been asked on the show before. Oh, good, 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 good. Number 290, we'll go in reverse numerical order. 297, right. do you believe in ghosts? Uh, in the kind of um, sort of science fiction-y or horror story type ghosts that, you know, creatures exist after they die and affect the physical world kind of ghosts, no, I do not think that there is scientific evidence for those. But... Are we all still haunted by ghosts? Do ghosts still visit us? Absolutely, because in our minds and in our own consciousnesses, the things of the past that as long as we allow them to be there will always remain in our minds and always affect us. That's beautiful. Number 296, is it ever okay to bend the truth for the overall good? Yes, because truth is itself relative. Um, a friend of mine, uh, in his lectures to his astronomy classes, always says at the beginning of the semester, I am not interested in the truth. I'm interested in what I see, what we can prove, and from there, find out things. Because truth, like history, like stories, like anything, uh, is interpreted from facts and observations. And so just because something is true doesn't mean that it's right. And just because something is right doesn't mean it's always true. That, that lends to the yeah. idea that we don't see the world how it is, we see the world how we are. Right. Um, we, we view, uh, and perhaps that's sort of the best way to loop back to what the world is right now and what we're going through, right? As we see now, perhaps more than we have at any other time in our lifetimes, that what we thought was true 
turns out to only be from one person's point of view or from one group's lived experience. Yeah. And if we can see more about what truth is on a larger scale, then we can understand that bending the truth in one instance or another is really serving a greater truth or a greater goodness that we can't even see. Uh, in my life so far, with from my travels and with my show, I've had the privilege of speaking with people from all over the world and, and countless different walks of life. And one of the things that comes up fairly often is the fact that despite all of us being here together, we actually live life somewhat alone in the end. Oh. And when you have the courage to kind of look at that and analyze it, I think you touch a, a part of the human condition that a lot of people are afraid to look at. And I bring this up because I've theorized that because we've discovered the universe is expanding and yes. increasing in speed, it's pulling everything further and further apart. And as life forms that exist in this universe, some people say that they kind of feel that expansion, that as the universe expands further and further, it makes us feel more lonely for the togetherness that we used to feel when we were all matter that was closer together. And uh, I'm curious what you think about that. Well, um, to complete that analogy about the expanding universe, I am not actually expanding away from you right now because we are being held steady by the force that's called gravity. Mm -hmm. The gravitational pull of the earth, and we can talk about how gravity isn't actually a force, but almost is basically equivalent to a force at small distances. That's general relativity, which we'll talk about some other time. <laughs> <laughs> But Earth's gravity holds us in place. So I'm not expanding away from you. The universe actually, yes, at large distances, when gravity can't quite do it, is expanding, is going further and further away. But at any given arbitrary location, whatever is there can still stay as close as they want to, to one another, if there's the force that holds them together. So I think you're absolutely right that we are all individual creatures, right? I mean, I'm not in uh, your head, for example. Uh, you're not in mine. So in the end, we are alone with our own thoughts in the dark. Uh, but at the same time, if we choose to have a connection, we can actively, through our own efforts, stay as connected as we want to to anybody else we wish. So your point... I think for me means that we all have this rich set of experiences that can be both individual and group. I know from the laws of physics that it requires effort to maintain a group, to be in a group, to be part of a greater whole. Something has to be expended. Some energy has to be put forth. But if we do that, then we can both enjoy the being aloneness when we want to be alone and being with others when you want to be with others. It just takes yeah. a little bit of effort. And I think that's a wonderful thing to think about. So don't worry, everybody. If you feel like you're drifting away, you kind of are, but you can reverse it. With your <laughs> own effort, you can make it work and enjoy it as you do it. Well, we've learned a lot. We've laughed a lot. And I am a much better person because of this conversation. So, Dr. Charles Liu, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, Daniel, thank you so much for having me. The pleasure has been all mine, seriously. And let's bring you back to talk about your book when it comes out. That would be awesome. Oh, thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure. We'll do it again. You take care. You too.
Friends and listeners, you can follow Charles on social media at Chuck Liu, C-H-U-C-K-L-I-U. And if you'd like to learn more about the amazing worlds of astronomy and astrophysics, there's a bunch of links in the show notes and on my website under his episode. While you're out there exploring the wonders of the universe, head on over to patreon.com forward slash moonbird and sign up today for early release episodes and show your support for the show. And of course, if you want even more Moonbird in your life, and hey, who wouldn't head on over to memoriesofamoonbird.com where you can sign up with a newsletter hint 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 or visit me on social media at memories of a moonbird and more than anything follow your passion and your dreams and of course stay safe